Hi, everyone. I'm Anita Lustria, and for many years I did live radio. Then I transitioned to the podcast world where I feel I found my home. I love talking about spiritual formation, justice issues, and spiritual practices. Throw in the Enneagram, movies, and current events from time to time, and that's what you get on the podcast. I'm glad you've come along for the ride. Welcome to Faith Conversations. Welcome to Faith Conversations, everyone. I'm delighted to be joined by two friends of the podcast. They've both been on uh, a variety of times, and you will recognize, of course, the voice of Melinda Schmidt, my former co-host back when we were doing radio and an oftentimes guest here on the podcast. Melinda, welcome to you. Hi there. Good to be here. Well, it's great to have you and the second guest, the mystery guest. Ah, it's been a while since John Lustria, my son, has been uh, on the podcast. John, welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be back. I was beginning to wonder if there was some sort of conspiracy <laughs> to keep me keep me out, but I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know what it was. I got over it. Whatever, whatever that deep hurt was that I'm sure you inflicted. <laughs> oh, yeah, the, wow. the deep hurt uh, of uh, traumatic brain injury. Yeah, yeah. Well, something like oh. that, right? Uh, well, it's good to have you both here, and the reason will become clear as our topic unfolds today. Um, I know some of you who have known Melinda and I for many years, at least through the airwaves, are not surprised when we say, oh, yeah, I was researching such and such the other day, or I got off on some rabbit trail the other day. Melinda, that doesn't happen to you, does it, when you're online? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Research is my middle name, gaining information. I think, yeah. um, what is this, Strengths Finders, all my strengths are in strategic for one and a couple of them are in gathering information so any personality test you can put out there for me getting information is a part of it so here and, we are <laughs> and exactly and so usually what happens is a text or an email comes my way you know i was newly... is the victim of my research <laughs> i was lucky you you have a podcast i was noodling on an idea maybe we could do this on the podcast yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. but, uh, you know, you got going down, I can't even remember the, the reason why or whatever. It doesn't matter actually, but, um, you started, uh, thinking about because, uh, the civil war, because, um, stuff came up in whatever research you were doing or something that happened, uh, came up on yeah. the internet and, um, and you started asking about, um, you know, getting a perspective from someone who certainly knows more than we do on the topic. Yeah. In fact, I have my text here that I copied and pasted to you. And I said, I'm noodling on an idea for a civil war podcast to pick John, John's a brain about our country. <laughs> no pressure, John. <laughs> um, and uh, just said, you know, I, I know in thinking about the civil war, John's degree is in civil war studies. And so I thought it would be interesting to, Get his perspective on some of the things that I was running into as I learned there were at least 46,000 some plantations in our country and that many of them have um, been what they say preserved mm -hmm. and restored and some are known as wedding venues or gardens or arboretums or you know places to socialize and um, I found often it said this is a chance to see life in that period of history um, as, as it was. 
But what concerned me was that what went on behind the plantation home oftentimes was not discussed or acknowledged. And it just kind of shocked me, I just have to say. It just shocked me. I I went to Germany in my mind in World War II, and I'm like, are they having weddings at concentration camps? And I want to be sensitive because I, I have to say, I'm a, a white girl from the North. So that completely, you know, has to be, has to influence what I'm saying. I didn't grow up in a Southern culture. There may be some listening today who got married at a plantation at a beautiful wedding. I, I don't know. You're probably turning this off by now, <laughs> but these are just some of the thoughts that started to raise in my head. What is, what are, what are, what are the moral decisions that need to be made about these geographical spaces in our country? And then the other thing was, I realized there's an app that I used to have on my phone that you can put in your address and it will tell you the Native American tribe that used to live on your address. So if you keep going back, you know, go back to the Vikings. It seems like we're always, you know, taking someone else's land or kicking someone else or enslaving somebody. This was part of Jesus culture and Bible times, the Roman empire. Oh, it just kind of became a swirl in my mind. And I mean, it is pretty depressing, you know, (laughs) it is. In fact, I said, I don't want to do it anymore. (laughs) <laughs> I don't want to do this podcast. And you said, well, I'm doing it with John. And, and if you want to do it, come on along. And so I, I thought, okay, mostly I want to hear what John says. <laughs> I figured I could lure you in with information. You, did. you knew it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and well, what, so what's interesting is uh, in the process of you sending me that email, uh, Mike and I finally were able to take a trip North to see family. It had been a long time due to COVID and whatnot. So it was great to connect with everyone and, John and his wife, Sarah, they were on our last stop, our final stop before coming back home. And, um, one of the places that I always enjoy going when I'm there, uh, is Harper's Ferry National Historical Park and the town Harper's Ferry. Uh, and John at one point was a seasonal ranger at Harper's Ferry National Historical Park. Well, I remember you and I went there and met midday listeners. That's right. Gathering. Yeah. That's right. Went Major to that cute gift road shop. Trip. Oh, That's and right. learned about Harper's Ferry. <laughs> and le- yes. And I keep going back to that cute gift shop. Every time I'm there, I got some earrings this time. <laughs> so, but John and I, we were walking around and kind of a rainy day. We got an ice cream cone and John said, Hey, let's go sit and eat our ice cream in one of my favorite places here at Harper's Ferry. So John, I'll uh, let you say where that was. And, uh, and then I'll you know, then I'll launch into what we talked about. Sure. Yeah. We went to John Brown's fort, uh, the place where John Brown, uh, one of the, for my money, one of the more interesting characters in American history, um, someone, uh, abolitionist who's uh, captured and executed for, uh, mm-hmm. staging a raid on Harper's Ferry to captured a federal gunmaking factory to perhaps start a slave insurrection in 1859. Mm. Uh, He's executed at that time. Um, And John Brown's credo, more or less, was that violence should be used to end the institution of slavery in America, uh, because slaveholders, uh, by the very virtue of owning slaves, had declared war uh, already in his mind. That's, That's how he approached it. And Brown is sort of endlessly interesting to me because um, he's 
clearly on what some people might call the right side of history uh, because he, you know, sort of is a very vocal advocate uh, against slavery, not just vocally, but by his actions as well. But of course, uh, Brown uh, was unequivocally in favor of violence to do so, uh, which, you know, of course, flies in the face of a number of other uh, activists uh, throughout time, you know, people like MLK or, or um, Nelson Mandela and others. Um, and, and I'm not just talking about, you know, violence on the battlefield. I mean, taking people out of their homes and sort of executing them. I mean, mm. pretty grim stuff. Um, but in any case, uh, John Brown is ultimately captured at Harper's Ferry in what comes to be known as John Brown's Fort. Brown and a few of his his followers are captured there, uh, ironically, by Robert E. Lee. Um, this is before Lee would go on to become a Confederate general. He's a lieutenant colonel at the time and the employee of the U.S. Army. Uh, but Brown's captured there, and it's one of the exhibits at Harper's Ferry National Historical Park. And on my last day as an intern in 2013, myself and a, a friend of mine, we got ice cream cones and, and we ate them in John Brown's Fort. Mm. So mom and I carried on that particular mm. noble tradition that I started in 2013. I have a question. That building, I remember we saw that. It's not very big. I mean, is no, that it's where quite, he, it, he was captured out small. of that small building? Yeah, Brown, and um, depending on which account you read, perhaps as many as 30 hostages um, that he had in there. I mean, it was cramped uh, in there. But yes, you're correct. It's not a, not a large space. And so he was taken out with his followers and executed. Uh, eventually, he, he stood trial uh, soon afterwards, and um, which was sort of an underrated part of that whole enterprise because the trials heavily reported on and Brown, um, you know, is very vocal about his goal to try and strike a blow against slavery and, it, and Brown's actions are part of probably was going to be this anyway, but are part of what thrust the issue of slavery front and center into ah. the, that makes it a, a an election issue, if you will, in 1860. Ah. Oh, interesting. And John, I correct me if I'm wrong here, but not everyone believes that slavery was the main issue, reason for the Civil War. Right. It's probably a battle we will fight as long as we're a country. Um, yes, there, there are a number of folks that uh, probably would argue that slavery is not the cause of the Civil War, whether that's through some combination of willful ignorance or just plain regular ignorance uh, of the subject. So there's probably some of both of that out there. Um, there's a great documentary that I would highly recommend to people to shed further light on this subject. It's uh, available on Peacock, which I believe you can just get for free. Um, you don't need to pay for it. I mean, there's gonna be ads and stuff, but I think you can just get Peacock for free and watch this. It's, in my opinion, poorly titled, but it's called, the documentary is simply called Civil War or Who Do We Think We Are? Uh, and it was done by documentarian Rachel Boynton, I think her name is. Um, but in any, in any case, she traveled the country uh, and visited schools throughout the United States and just sort of interviewed students, teachers and people in the community about literally how the Civil War was taught in classrooms and how that dif uh, differed pretty greatly uh, around the country. It's a really interesting documentary. Uh, and I had the good fortune to interview her in my job at the museum. And for those that don't know, I'm the director of education at the National Museum of Civil War Medicine. So you can find that interview on our YouTube channel. 
and she she I, it was a, a great interview and I think a really excellent documentary. So let me stop right now and say that I will put that uh, links to both of those things, the documentary and to the interview you did and say her name again, Rachel. Uh, Rachel Boynton, I believe that's right. I'm just going to quickly look that up and confirm I got that right. Yeah, I'll put a link so that people can um, hear that interview that you did with her as well. And uh, of course, professional, you know, professional radio host mom doesn't properly introduce son as be, being the educational director at the National Museum of Civil War. And what War is your Medicine. degree in, John, as well? Uh, my degree is in, in public history. Um, my, well, bachelor's degree in history from University of Illinois, and then a uh, master's degree in public history from University of South Carolina. Uh, I, I specialize in the Civil War, in Civil War history, but my degree doesn't say that uh. I do. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. I guess I'm kind of wondering though, how John, you like you're interested in the civil war, like heretofore, I, I just thought of that as kind of factual and you know, intricate details of what happened at Gettysburg and, you know, you know, a lot of these things that, that we don't, that we're not fully taught along the way, but I'm kind of, I'm just going to jump to it. Like, how do you, handle okay i'm gonna say in your heart i don't know if an academician can do that but (laughs) an academic can do that i'm not saying you don't have a heart but (laughs) i know you do but how do you reconcile this this crushing reason for a war and the fact that you know to me every plantation in america should have be on a national park and should all be going the same direction in its thinking, which is to explain how this was wrong. And and how have you interacted with that thinking? Yeah, well, so a a few different things there. Uh, I mean, you're, you're correct in sort of the the lead up to your question that, you know, civil war history, there's a lot of like tactical minutiae in terms of like military history that, you know, sort of out there between you and me, doesn't actually matter that much. I mean, it's important, you know, and and that's in many ways what first kind of drew me to Civil War history in the first place. But uh, I find myself growing less and less interested in that as time goes on. Um, the, the whole question on plantations and how they present the history of slavery or don't, um, there are a number out there uh, that are presenting the history of slavery and have taken great pains, uh, especially in the last 20 years, to make that history more front and center than it has been. Um, now, the reason why some of them don't are fairly complex. Uh, you mentioned how ideally all the these plantations should be national parks. And I'll tell you, as a former National Park Service ranger, that's like laughably infeasible. <laughs> that, that will, that will never much. happen. The, the, the Park Service can barely uh, uh, mm. handle the units that it currently has, <laughs> let mm-hmm. alone however many thousands of plantations it's not. But, but a lot of them are independent historic sites, which is sort of a blessing and a curse. Uh, the blessing is that, you know, they're sort of preserved for history and, and such, which is good, but it depends on who's doing the preserving and who's right. doing the telling. Yes. Um, so in the world of museums, so the National Park Service, you know, it's a federal entity. They have, you know, broad guidelines about how to do things. And in particular, uh, right around 2000, 
um, or maybe even just a little bit before it in the late 90s. But either way, embarrassingly late, um, they held a, a summit. Uh, I, I want to say it's called uh, Rally on the High Ground or something kind of cheesy like that, where basically they said, if you're a Civil War park or are telling anything or interpret anything related to the Civil War, uh, slavery must be central to your mm. interpretation and slavery as a direct cause of the war. Um, so National Park Service sites theoretically should be pretty good at this. Uh, and uh, there's one in, in my neck of the woods. It's a place called Hampton um, National Park or, or something. It's just outside Baltimore. And actually, uh, a friend of mine works there, Mom, uh, Jimmy. Oh, yeah. uh, Jimmy works <laughs> there. Um, and, and and they've been on that for a while. Even when I visited there for the first time in 2013, uh, the history of slavery was front and center. So there are a number of places that are doing this well. Uh, and even some of the, the individual museums. Now, it depends on how they're organized. Sometimes they might be a state park, in which case they report to the state government, or perhaps they're an independent nonprofit with a, a board of governors or a board of directors that they, you know, that kind of pass that that stuff down uh or they might be beholden to the large donors which it you know yeah. who knows who they are so there's, there's a multiplicity of different reasons for why things are the way they are at some of these plantation sites and if you talk about revenue and income uh weddings are a very good source of revenue and income for historic sites um and we can get into sort of the ethics of that in, yeah. in a bit uh, but this is just a long way of saying um there's a multiplicity of different factors that go into how the story uh is told uh and at historic sites things move glacially slow um mm. so even when things are uh changing and especially in the the last you know five or so years things have been changing perhaps at a slightly faster rate um these things don't happen uh overnight um so it, it's uh it's an ongoing issue that uh you know uh hopefully we'll see more plantation sites get better at but like i said it depends a lot on who is calling the shots there well, uh, Melinda, you sent a couple of, I thought, really helpful articles on to, to John and I. And um, one of the things that stuck out in my mind was as people, as the public uh, comes to one of these plantations that may or that may be starting to uh, to tell the more of the true history of slavery, um, the the educators, those giving the tours um, on staff at the the various places, are met with. Um, the, to, it, it, this was kind of shocking to me. And John, maybe you met with some of this as you gave tours at Harper's Ferry, maybe even at the you know the National Museum of Civil War Medicine, where people just say blatantly crazy things like, "Oh, hey, it wasn't that bad for slaves. They they had a place to live and sleep or what." And and you're absurd. I mean, yeah, thank you. Absurd. Absurd. Except that I have heard friends say that in the last couple of years in our racial discussions that really erupted full on in 2020, and it just shocked me. And then I read in print exactly what you're saying, Anita. Well, you know, some of them like their slave owners, and and they taught them to read. And I remember saying to someone, "But would you want to be a slave?" 
you know, what if it was you? Do you want to go there and live and and all the rest of it? It it just seems, I don't know, John, if you ran, have you run into that as giving tours and so forth in your past life? <laughs> uh, fortuitously, uh, I, I myself haven't quite run into anything like that, but I, I have known several people who have been on the direct receiving end of questions and or comments like that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly pretty, pretty tough to take. Um, the, the thing that is just so challenging for me is, is, you know, people bristle sometimes when they go to these plantation sites and say, you know, why, why do we have to spend so much time talking about this unpleasant history or, mm. or, you know, that's not actually how it was, you know, it's just, why, why do these people suddenly care where, you know, I, Obviously, I don't know these people, certainly as individuals, but, you know, my impression is that most people don't really care that much about history uh, until it's not the way that they want it to be. And suddenly they care an awful lot about it. And, and it's it's hard to well said for me to understand why it is that suddenly things not being the way that they want them to be or feel like they ought to be um, is so incredibly challenging for people and, and why they, they bristle so intensely at this. Um, well, this is, this is why one. counselors are making big bucks because, you know, people want to make changes and yet, you know, others in their lives don't want them to make changes. We want status quo, you know, changes bring up things that might be uncomfortable or painful, right. right? Right. And I think even I saw that in 2020 with some friends who were like, why are we still talking about that? It's in the past. And I think, you know, okay, I can even swallow that. But at the site of these places, to me, there is only like one thing to say. This was the home where the free people lived. And back behind the house are where enslaved people who were tortured and managed as animals lived. And that is a part of our, our history. Let's tell the whole story. I, I think when I read about one of these plantations and it's now an arboretum and gardens, it's doesn't that sound wonderful? But in my head, I'm like, but this isn't, it's not true. It's not, you know, and again, then John, I, I bring up Germany, you know, or, you know, the places of, of Nazism have been um, respected for what they are. Granted, but, yeah, but I mean, not I mean, lauded, but not lauded. Right. Not turned into arboretums and gardens and wedding venues. Right. So, I mean, certainly, you know, um, places like Auschwitz are important to preserve for, for a variety of reasons. That's how. You know, to you know, never forget and things of that nature, uh, and and likewise, of course. I mean, as you're suggesting, Melinda. I mean, for the same reason that plantation homes are worth preserving, so that we might never forget, you know, sort of the horrors that happened here. Mm -hmm. But there's not a lot of Hitler statues in Germany. There's an awful lot of Confederate statues in in the, I was the thinking U.S. Of that too. Uh, and and not just to the generals. Uh, I, I mean, and that that's another thing that people get all up in arms. Uh, at, you know, when people suggest removing the monuments, how much time are, are people spent, you know, gathering around at the monuments? And a common refrain that people say is that, you know, we're, we're erasing history. 
I mean, do people go to monuments to learn about history? Uh, would they like mm. to learn, for example, what was said at the dedication uh, of the monuments in the 1920s mm. uh, and, and such? Why the monuments were put there in the first place? Um, not just to celebrate Confederate soldiers or Confederate leaders, but perhaps what they stood for. Uh, and, and they're quite explicit not only in dedication speeches when the monuments are originally erected, but the Confederate government itself um, it looked no further than the cornerstone speech by Vice President of the Confederacy, Alexander Stevens, where he says, uh, and this is more or less a pretty direct paraphrase, that uh, the cornerstone of the Confederate government is built upon the premise that the white man is superior to the black man. Uh, it's just, it, it's right there. Uh, oh and, and my you... goodness well, okay so this goes to what are we being taught in school right yeah it, let's go back to, to yeah that. it's uh, a, a really pretty wild thing um and <laughs> yeah you go ahead, well Mom. i just wanted to say this what are we being taught in school and of course i'm a resident of florida now and i'm absolutely appalled at the fact that you know they're working on maybe it's already been enacted laws to say well, you can't bring up in the class something that would make another student uncomfortable. What you mean you could raise your hand and say, oh, this talk of slavery, I feel uncomfortable. I don't want to hear what, you know, as a white person, what my part was. So it's not talked about. I, I don't think so. Um, yeah, well, and and it's especially rich, you know, the the same people that sort of advocate for things like that, or at least tend to, uh, are the same people that say that, uh, you know, taking down monuments is erasing history. Uh, the not being able to teach sort of the the full thrust of what actually happened in American history. I mean that that is erasing history, uh, and you know, but of the, course, the whole Christians idea of, don't of believe that. Christians believe by faith that Jesus came to earth, you know, with how many monuments, I mean, we're digging all the time to find supportive evidence that that story even is historically true. If you're, if you're not a believer in Jesus, you know what I'm saying? Like, mm -hmm. I think we we're like, on both talking on both sides of this fence or out, whatever you say. Yeah. Both sides. Well, of the mouth. So sides the, of our mouth. Yeah. 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 The, um, something that sort of is an undercurrent to all of this and, and kind of sort of an answer to, the rhetorical question that I posed earlier, you know, what, why do people care so much? Uh, the number one book I, I can't recommend enough. Uh, it's called Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. Yes. Um, who, you know, of course, anything Isabel Wilkerson does is the best. I uh, can't mm. recommend people read her enough. Um, but basically her argument in that book is that uh, America is a caste society along the lines of what you might find in India. Um, and our caste society is stratified by skin color. Um, and she, it, it's a very clinical and thorough uh, dissection of what she means by that in the book. Um, but uh, part of, of what she says is that, uh, you know, in, in a caste society, even the implication that the higher rungs of a caste might be culpable is a, a, a you know terrible offense. Wow. And so so that that's I think partially where the prickliness comes from. And and also again what she says in the book too is that this is not always people are not always consciously aware that these are the buttons and levers that are being pushed and pulled and triggered by you know the removal of monuments or the teaching of things in school. Um, it, it's just you know. It, 
pervasive around people in a way that water surrounds fish. I mean, are, are the fish aware that they're swimming in water? Maybe, mm -hmm. probably not. Mm -hmm. um, but it's 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 there, uh, and that's certainly the case for um, that's certainly the case for uh, living in a caste society for a lot of people. There are a lot of just sort of invisible things that we spend no time thinking about, yeah. but but that just pervade us. But I think that is what so discouraged me is I kept following this through and I don't know, maybe I went too existential, but, you know, the fact that people aren't recognizing this or that adults, like we're not in school anymore, but we're adults fully formed, aren't thinking about this or aren't calling for recognition of the truth. Talk about erasing history. I think we need to ramp it up on these plantations and, you know, well, get it going and, and, and tell really the truth. And that's what really discouraged me about this. I don't see this changing and I don't know what you guys think, but I, I like to do podcasts on a topic that I think, you know, there's change possible. I'm hopeful. But when I got through this, I was just like, how, how is this going to change? Oh, it, it's bleak for sure. Um, there's, there's no two ways about it. I mean, it, it's, uh, a long and winding road before it gets better mm -hmm. on, I think, a, a substantial scale. Mm -hmm. uh, the encouraging thing, though, is there there are people, you know, around the country who are, you know, doing good work and, and working to uh, make uh, marginalized history more visible. Uh, I mean, I, I can even just speak for some of my colleagues. So I went to graduate school with, um, you know, a lot of the positions that are open now in, in universities are uh, positions that uh, skew towards the telling of, uh, you know, or the focus on, on minority history or, or previously marginalized history. Um, another thing that at some point, it's unclear when exactly, will we'll bring about some big changes. Um, the United States is rapidly headed towards uh, uh, having a, a non-white majority. Uh, and by various reports, that's going to happen in 15 to 30 years. I mean, mm. not too far away. Uh, and then those people are going to start voting. And, and, you know, I mean, things will change. Uh, and it's just a matter of how and when. And, and just uh, one other, and this is a very small anecdote, but um, I'm a big fan of... Um, Oh, what's his name? Mike Schur, I believe is his his name. He's one of the creative minds behind uh, The Office, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and The Good Place, which I can unequivocally recommend all three of those programs yeah. to anybody. Um, but he, you know, he's, he's sort of a comedic genius of sorts um, in terms of network television. Um, but he, he gave an interview I heard a couple of years ago where he said, you know, I, I'm a straight white male. I don't have anything else interesting to tell the people. And he basically said that he wants sort of the rest of his career to be kind of designated towards, uh, you know, producing programs that don't focus on on the white perspective, or at least are, are helmed by uh, writers of color, producers of color, directors of color. Uh, I mean, the, the, the white straight story is out there in spades. And, and that's not to take away from it. I mean, it, it's a, you know, across forms of media and pop, pop culture, you know, it's good. It's interesting. It's fun. There's all, been all kinds of great bits of media produced from that. But, you know, it's encouraging to me that 
there seems to be more a, a thrust towards this. I mean, just a couple programs that I haven't actually watched, but are on my list and have received some pretty substantial critical acclaim uh, um, show called Atlanta, written by uh, Donald Glover, uh, and then uh, Reservation Dogs. Yes. Uh, these, these are both on Hulu. Yes. Um, but they're, you know, they focus on uh, stories from communities of color, uh, the African-American experience and the Native American experience. So yes. it's bleak, no doubt, Melinda, but there are some glimmers of hope here and there. But, um, so but we'll I think see. you're speaking to the fact that, okay, there, there have been incremental shifts. And those are the reasons that we can't lose hope because mm -hmm. our voices do matter every, you know, the put, putting this podcast out there into the universe will make someone think. Um, yeah, and, and you got to keep talking. Yeah. And Anita, I hope you'll post both of those articles from the BBC oh, yes. that I sent because they're very interesting and, they are. and they're factual. And I think those who might be listening, who live in a state where there are plantations, I would just encourage you to do a little homework, write a letter to somebody yeah. compassionately, you know, just say, or kindly, you know, I'd like to see the full story taught and maybe that can begin to make a difference. And I would just say for me spiritually, because as a Christian, I, I try to process this through my faith. And it came to me that when Jesus came to earth, he came to a, a planet where there, you know, the blood of greed and whatever filled the earth. That wasn't God's dream. And so when he came to earth, imagine looking around and going, gosh, you know, and the Amalekites did this here and Jericho was there. And, and, you know, a lot of blood was spilled and, you know, sometimes the old Testament is confusing about all that as well. You know, as you see God wiping people out. So I don't know. I, I thought, you know, Jesus really loved earth. He, it, it's just a fact where he came, you know, he was experiencing this as well, just as we do with just the immorality that's taken place in our, in our country. And yet there was hope for, um, you know, to set people free, Luke four, Isaiah 61, you know, how can we set people free and set the captive free and whatever that means in our community or how we can do that? Um, I, I don't know. I guess I thought, gosh, he had to reckon with this too. Imagine how bleak or sad it must've been for him. I thought, no wonder he was always going off in the mountains thinking about something, <laughs> you know, because to process this and to be so disappointed in humanity and to think this is not what I had in mind, you know, and, and in the middle of, of the Roman occupation. Right. Right. I, I just continue to think I, I have a responsibility to speak up. And, and I was really glad when you brought this topic to me, because I thought, you know, I haven't really had any many or uh, lately any justice oriented programs. I've had a variety of spiritual formation programs, and I think we have to be deeply formed and not just shallowly formed. And that's how we can enter some of these conversations. But I think justice is something that Jesus was all about and that right, we right. got to keep raising right. our voices. Um, I, you know, I just think even the plantation piece, uh, uh, just financially, you know, who's benefiting from that. Right. And you just start mentioning the reparations right. conversation and, yeah. and that's, I can't even begin to imagine how or what, and, I, and yet I look at, uh, something like Georgetown university, um, 
doing some wonderful things that direction um, and, and others. And so, you know, I think anytime we raise it, we, we can get someone thinking that wasn't thinking about it before and get a, another conversation going. Someone's going to talk to, you know, Aunt Martha or their cousin or their friend down the street who's not previously even thought much about this. I think we just have to keep raising our voices. So. Yeah. Yeah. John, it's been interesting to hear how this kind of fits. And then it's just like kind of a spider web. It just goes in a lot of different directions. Oh, it very much is. Um, there, there's no question about that. Um, and and uh, to for, for me, I, I have just a couple, um, you know, kind of tangible takeaways. Yeah, um, I was going to say, for, maybe let's give this, let's let you have the last word. We'll wrap it up here. Yeah, well, just number one, there's just a wealth of resources out there. I mean, if this is overwhelming, challenging, there's lots of different directions you can go with this, but, hmm. um, you know, read, educate yourself. There's, there's so many. Uh, and I, I have a, a list of books that a, a colleague of mine in the National Park Service, Emmanuel Dabney, put together in, in 2020 that uh, cover uh, issues with the African American experience uh, from, you know, the revolutionary era uh, all the way up to the present day. Uh, and I, I love how he has it separated out chronologically. So if there's an area of history that particularly interests you, you can gravitate to that on the list. There's re online resources as well that aren't just books. Anyway, that's a, that's a great so list. So I'll link that. I'll get that from John and link that. Yep. Okay. That's a great one. Uh, next, visit historic sites and or museums uh, and, and hold them accountable. If they're not doing a good job, uh, let them know. I mean, respectfully, don't mm -hmm. be a jerk. Um, um, but go out there and and see where the history happened. Uh, there's no real substitute for that. So so do that. Um, like Melinda was saying, talk with friends, um, perhaps maybe do a book club, either in your community or in your circle of friends. Uh, and then finally, see what's happening in your local community, get involved. Yes. Um, and, and a real easy one, um, there are chapters of the NAACP around the country um, doing good work. Uh, just join it. Um, you know, I think for, uh, I just joined somewhat recently, actually, I think it's like $35 a year, I think. Uh, it probably varies. But anyway, it's not a huge financial commitment yeah. just to just to start, go to meetings and things like that. Yeah. And, and even beyond that, um, you know, Work, work with your church um, to see what's going on, or perhaps start a committee at your church. Um, so there, or even there are... having the conversation over coffee, even if it's Absolutely. if people stare at you and don't know what you're talking about, at least you planted a seed, that's and maybe right. they'll follow through. hundred yeah. so percent. So that, those are just uh, a few things. So bottom line, we've just scratched the surface. I mean, barely, but you know what? That's what this is about: speaking up and planting seeds and. So we did that today. And my thanks, Melinda, to you for raising this question in the first place. And John, also to you for joining yeah, I'm so us. So grateful speaking for your thoughts, John. From your educational experience. Yeah. Thanks so much. Yeah. So uh, to everyone else, I say keep the conversation going. Amen.